The future of education isn't fixed. It's made one thought, one conversation, one choice at a time. I'm Bernard Bull, your host, and I've spent most of my adult life thinking, talking, and writing about the future of education, struggling to figure out how I can help create a more hopeful, humane, and inspiring education system. Welcome to EDU Futures, where I talk with world-class innovators, scholars, futurists, and people discontent enough with the status quo to do something about it. Are you ready? Here we go. Well, welcome, everyone. Today, I have Kathleen Fitzpatrick, who is Director of Digital Humanities and Professor of English at Michigan State University. Prior to assuming this role in 2017, she served as Associate Executive Director and Director of Scholarly Communication of the Modern Language Association. She's author of Generous Thinking, the University and the Public Good, published in 2019, and has a lot of other work in her background as well. But we're going to focus upon this Generous Thinking book. So without further ado, Kathleen, welcome. Well, thank you so much. It's a delight to have you. And as I have new guests on the show, some people may be familiar with with certain guests. Others, this may be the first time they're getting a chance to hear from them. Maybe they've read a little bit. But I always love to give the listeners a chance to hear a bit of the um, guest story. So you can start as far back as you want, but if you could just share a little bit about how did you get into this line of work that you're doing today? Absolutely. Well, I I started my career after graduate school um, as a professor of English and media studies at Pomona College in Southern California, a really sort of idyllic small liberal arts college. And um, during the time that I was at Pomona, um, I you know, was doing the things that, that assistant professors are supposed to do. I revised my dissertation into a monograph. Um, I started sending it around to try to get it published and ran into some oddnesses in the contemporary publishing landscape within academia that made me start thinking about scholarly communication itself as the substance of the the research that I wanted to do going forward. So I I wrote a second book um, that really focused on, on the future of the academy and its relationship to technology and the ways that new network technologies were likely to change scholarly communication. And that project really brought me to the attention of the Modern Language Association, which I'd been a member of all along and had served on various committees for. Um, But I was asked by the association to really come think with them about what the future of the association's publishing practices might be and how the association might work with members to support them as their work became increasingly digital. So I, I moved to New York and I spent six years um, as a member of the, the senior leadership team at the MLA and had a really wonderful time, um, not least because the position enabled me to get a little bit broader view of what was going on across the profession, right? Rather than being sort of ensconced within one relatively small institution, I was able to see a lot of phenomena that were happening at a much broader scale, um, particularly nationally, but a little bit internationally as well. And it was some of that work and some of the the things that I saw happening that led me to um, the 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 ideas behind generous thinking, um, the book which came out last year. So um, that all leads me around to where I am today. 
That is, that's, a, that's an amazing background. Uh, wonderful. Well, let's go ahead and dive right into the book because these interviews go so quickly, these short form 30-minute uh, mm-hmm. interviews. I found one review that I really liked. And uh, is it Stephen Breyer, B-R-I-E-R? Is that? Yes. Um, yes. So Stephen wrote a, a delightful review, uh, wrote that Kathleen Fitzpatrick is one of the smartest and most nimble intellectuals and theorists working in academia today. In generous thinking, she challenges us to reimagine the university, the work we do, how we do it, and how we share and evaluate it. Fitzpatrick offers a subtle and thoughtful reflection on the meaning, purposes, and possibilities of the university, and goes on from there. It's a, that's, that's a pretty nice review. <laughs> it is awfully nice. Steve is, is a really wonderful scholar and, and an extraordinarily generous one, uh, which I'm, I'm grateful to have those words from him. So with that background, let's go ahead and dive into sort of the premise of the book uh, a little bit more and, um, and see where it might take us. Uh, obviously, at, 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 uh, at an early stage in the text, you note that there is a current uh, challenge in the 21st century university. And one of the aspects of that that you note is and, and highlight throughout is this, this notion of a lost trust. Can you just talk us through a little bit? Uh, what is the trust that's been lost and why? Absolutely. Perhaps? I mean, I think the, the trust is, um, it, there are a number of different aspects to it. I mean, we, we have seen a number of recent studies, um, one from the, the Pew Research um, Center, one that got reported on in Inside Higher Education, which, which really indicate that there's a lost confidence in higher education and in, in, in particular in institutions of higher education um, within the American public right now. There is a sense that where once you know, American um, institutions of higher education provided a kind of pathway to a solid, stable, middle-class life. There were an engine of, of social advancement. Um, that, that no longer feels the case to a whole lot of people in American culture today. And that derives from a whole lot of different um, directions, that loss of trust. Some of it has to do with the degree to which um, the, the costs of that education, which once were borne by the state or by the federal government, are now devolved on to families and students themselves directly. So there's been a kind of privatization of the costs of that education, resulting in an enormous debt load that students and their families are required to take on today. And there's a decreasing sense that that investment in higher education is really paying results, right? That there is, um, that that the investment is worth it on some deep level. There's also a sense, politically speaking, um, within the United States today that um, institutions of higher education are out of step with the majority of the American culture, that we are, you know, sort of bastions of liberalism that are fomenting revolution and that are misleading American students by dissuading them from um, taking more productive, more um, pragmatic paths by filling their heads with all kinds of useless knowledge, right? Um, That is not going to lead to some kind of productive career trajectory. So I I think the loss of of trust is at one in the same time 
a sense that these institutions that were supposed to serve the public good are now out of reach um, for many people. And um, from another perspective, that the good that we provide is not the good that people are coming to us looking for. Um, whether it should be is an open question, right? There's a, there's an argument to be made that, in fact, higher education in the United States has been made too functionalist and has been too oriented toward a particular set of career-based material outcomes and not at all um, focused on the kinds of social good that higher education um, was once in the United States understood to provide. So the, the argument of generous thinking is that if we are going to rebuild trust between the American institutions of higher education and the publics that those institutions are intended to serve, that we really need to begin by having deeper conversations about what higher education is for, about how we can communicate the value of what's happening on campus to the publics who don't really understand necessarily what it is we're up to because we have a tendency to keep that work to ourselves and to really engage in a, a, a mode of expressing why higher education is of value um, beyond the purely pecuniary um, to American lives today. So one of the things that intrigued me about about your book was was the notion was an invitation to take a posture that that struck me as as a wonderfully humble and curious posture one of of listening as opposed to speaking uh, it seems to me that many conversations about this lost trust in higher education that the recommendations are targeting people in higher ed and it's, in essence, arguing that we need to market better or advertise better. Mm -hmm. But you seem to take us a different direction. I do, um, because I, I, I honestly believe that American higher education has gotten caught up in the competitive mindset of the broader American culture to its detriment, right? We're, we're supposed to be pitching higher education as if it were a market product. And one of the failures of today's higher education system is precisely that the, the work that is most important in higher education isn't aimed at a, a sort of personal level of achievement. It's not just that credential that you come out of here with, but instead the, the ability to learn that carries forward over the course of a lifetime. And so, you know, sort of marketing that or thinking about um, sort of industrial concerns and concerns that come to us from the predominantly um, exchange-based culture that we live in, like efficiency or like, you know, our, our customer base and so forth, focusing on those kinds of competitive areas of interest actually undoes the, the more social and communal goods that higher education is really meant to provide. Um, the ways that we can really be helping build strong communities rather than competitive individuals. And so a big part of, of what I am after really in the book is, is trying to instill the importance of exactly that kind of listening mindset um, that, that you uh, mentioned, that what we in the academy have been drawn into in being drawn into forms of competitive thinking 
is a posture in which we're constantly preparing for the next thing that we have to say, rather than really hearing what's being said around us and, and attempting to engage in productive dialogue. And it's that listening posture that I think that can bring us back to a real understanding of the role of institutions of higher education in, uh, in the building of strong communities. How has that posture of listening influenced your own thinking about the role of higher education as it relates to the public good? Oh, that's a that's a really interesting question. I think one of the ways that it's influenced my own thinking is the sort of recognition that honestly, in any given exchange, whoever it is I am talking to, I very likely have less to teach than I do to learn. Right. In any given exchange, there is something that if I am open to it, I can come to a deeper understanding of. And that's that's transformed the ways that I operate in the classroom, um, because my classrooms are not about me imparting knowledge to students, but rather about us together engaging in a common pursuit of a different kind of knowledge. But it's also made it possible for me to really understand that that the work that I do and the work that we all do as scholars um, needs to be part of an ongoing set of conversations with a broader culture, right? That, you know, as I, I have done a series of projects in public, I've had people from all kinds of walks of life respond to those projects. And their responses have helped me really think about the real significance beyond the academy of the kinds of work that I'm interested in. So so really adopting that listening posture enables me to think about um, the, the broader connections and the broader service that the work that we're all engaged in on campus might do. You talk about the notion of, of thinking constructively versus thinking competitively. And you talk about this, this posture of, of uh, empathy as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's also this distinction between the individual versus the collective. Um, And how how does that fit into your, the larger case that you're trying to make here, community over individualism? Well, I think, um, I mean, I want, I would want to distinguish um, between the notion of the individual or individualization on the one hand, as being, you know, always it is the responsibility of the individual to do the work of learning and to do the work of knowledge creation. But on the other hand, there is this notion of individualism that has become so ingrained within American culture that is the sense that that the individual comes first, right? That the individual is the basis of all action and all good. And in fact, um, you know, what I would argue is that that individuals together, coming together as communities, coming together to collaborate, are where real good comes from. And so particularly within in the scholarly universe, you know, we 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 talk a lot about collaboration and about the importance of scholars working together interdisciplinarily or within teams to to advance knowledge within our fields. Um, But in the end, it always comes back to the individual who is the one who gets evaluated for tenure and promotion, right? Or who is the one whose CV 
gets put together with the information about what they've accomplished on it, who is the one who is able to, you know, get the merit raise um, for the work that they've done. So there's this interesting contradiction within the academy between what seemed to me some really collective communal goals that we all have together, and then the, the, the individual competition for scarce resources and for acclaim and um, for time and for funding and so forth that that actually drive the ways that we do that work. And because of this contradiction, we end up not able to achieve the kinds of ideal communal social results that we'd like to see coming out of our institutions. We end up getting diverted down the path of what's good for the individual and what's going to help me as an individual scholar get ahead. So as you're thinking about that um, today, I mean, have you seen some examples where um, there's been some promising progress in this direction? Are you seeing that movement? Yeah, I, I do see movement um, within particular research collectives and within particular um, projects and fields. Um, one of the projects that I would point to that I think is really an exemplar of this move from the individual to really thinking communally um, is the, the Color Conventions Project, which is a, a digital project that's bringing together an archive and a whole lot of other related historical materials um, of a series of conventions that were held across the, the 19th century um, that were really key to the development of African-American political life in the United States. And that project um, is led by a, a highly distinguished senior professor um, in, in the field, and yet, she has explicitly said at every turn that, that there is no I within her project team, that it's all we. Um, that when, for instance, the Modern Language Association awarded this, this project um, a major prize for um, you know, most ambitious digital work that was being granted in a particular year and wrote to her to say, um, we want you to come accept this prize on behalf of the project. She said, I, I will not do that. There will be at least three of us present and only the project receives the prize, not the individuals within it. And that I find really, um, really astonishing as a mode of, of recognizing that, um, that the, the collective knowledge that was produced by the Colored Conventions um, and the collective knowledge that's being produced in the Colored Conventions project really require that kind of team-based endeavor and really require putting the collective first. Um, and this project has been extraordinarily successful. As I noted, it's won um, that prize from the MLA, but also another series of, uh, you know, many other series of prizes and um, has really made an extraordinary difference um, in both thinking about digital humanities and the ways that we can communicate today, but also in its specific historic field. Um, so I, I think that that is just one example of the ways that scholars are, are, are have the potential, at least, to say that the we is really the thing that matters here and that the dialogue that we can create through projects like this um, is far more important than the achievement of any one individual within the project. The, I can see how something like that could emerge from a established scholar who's already built their reputation 
and they they don't have to worry about sort of rank and promotion processes as exist in many colleges and the like. Mm-hmm. How does that spread to others who are maybe earlier stage or the very large population of adjunct faculty, for example, um, who feel like they have to fight for, um, you know, fight for their job the next semester? Yeah, I mean, from what I I, I I am going to be hard pressed to name particular projects right now, but I've got several circulating in the back of my head that are predominantly run by early career scholars, um, by by scholars who are working in non teaching positions, either within or outside the academy, um, and by by folks who are in somewhat more precarious positions that are really co- collaborative and collective in this same spirit. And I think what's required for um, those kinds of projects to succeed in the same way that a project that's being led by a, a senior professor might be able to succeed in that regard is for institutions to, to take the project seriously, to recognize that, quite frankly, as we all know, collaboration is hard and that you know working with five people on a particular project doesn't mean you do a fifth of the work. It means that the project takes five times as long and all five of you do all of the work. And also that these kinds of collaborations need to be valued for their own sake, right? To, to, to understand that um, in the process of evaluation, the, the, the process of this work is having as much an impact as is its ultimate product. So I think there are a number of institutions, I know there are a number of institutions because one of them is mine, um, that, that are engaged in the process right now of really rethinking promotion and tenure practices in ways that open them up to reward different kinds of outcomes, right? That it isn't just all about the the book or the journal article anymore. It isn't about, you know, single authorship in fields where single authorship has been dominated or first authorship um, in fields where there's been a, a, a practice of collaboration, but that instead lots of work can happen in lots of different ways and that that work needs to be rewarded on its own merits. Um, so it's, I mean, it's it's an uphill battle, and it's a battle in some ways that has to be led by those of us who are in secure positions, right? Those of us who, you know, frankly, are, are at times least likely to argue for change because the ways that promotion and tenure work have already worked for us, right? We've already gotten promoted, and therefore, there doesn't seem to be anything wrong with the standards. Um, but if those of us who are, are in these secure positions can step forward on behalf of, of folks who are in less secure positions to say, we really have to transform this institution to make sure that its internal structures of reward actually align with the goals and the values that it claims to uphold, um, then we might be able to be in a position in which um, in which the the value of working on alternative forms of knowledge production is understood as being absolutely um, key to the entire enterprise. I come from a background where I cut my teeth on the field of media ecology. And mm. so we oftentimes look at at uh, affordances and limitations uh, of technologies and policies are an example of a technology in, in a school and in, in a system. And, and the notion that there are always affordances and limitations, that 
it's there's always a Faustian bargain. There are always yeah. new winners and new lo- losers with every policy. There's there's no such thing in in the real world as this utopian policy that doesn't have some kind of of, of consequence. So as we engage in these conversations, it seems to me that we run into the challenges whenever people begin to realize the shifting winners and losers. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think that's absolutely right. I think that's absolutely right. And I think that there is a very strong tendency. Um, or, uh, let me put it this way, that there there is a very strong bias within the academy toward um, the status quo, um, precisely because those those who have succeeded within the current system of, of evaluation and its priorities are the ones who are maintaining that system of evaluation and its priorities. Um, and I, I do think that there are there are valid concerns to be raised um, by some scholars about whether this move toward collectivism and collaboration that I'm arguing for is going to you know make the the scholar who really just simply wants to be left alone to write a book um, no longer able to do so. On the one hand, I appreciate those concerns, and I value very much the single author book, having published three of them. Um, It's obviously not something that I want to do away with. But I also believe that that book is always in dialogue, in some sense, with its community, whether that community is scholars who've gone before or the, the people that I am aiming to get it in the hands of. And the, the more adept I am as a scholar at being able to understand the community of practice that I'm working within and the community that I aim to serve with the work that I'm doing, um, the, the more that that book is going to find its audience and is going to resonate. So I think that, that while it sounds like there are to be winners and losers, winners in the forms of you know, collaborative projects and losers in the form of the single author monograph. I, I don't think that's necessarily so. I just think that, that we might begin thinking more productively about ways to get the work the Academy is doing in whatever form we're doing it um, into greater public consideration. Absolutely. And I want to, we're we're already getting near the end of our time. So there's another strand of thinking I'd like to just sort of redirect us um, that it relates. I'm sure it'll tie together, but there was another concept that resonated with me quite a bit, which was this invitation or challenge to focus upon building new ideas versus um, devoting the majority of our energy to sort of tearing down the old ones. That Mm -hmm. resonated with me because one of my favorite quotes, in fact, it's so much a favorite that at the end of every episode of this podcast, podcast, I quote it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And it's a Buckminster Fuller quote where he talked about that, that really significant changes in the world rarely happen from fighting against the existing realities. They happen from creating alternatives or new possibilities that are just so compelling that people begin to choose that new option over the uh, existing reality. Ah. So uh, I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about what you were thinking and and sort of your argument of focusing upon new ideas versus tearing down old ones. Absolutely. I mean, I I think a part of my thinking around this um, really comes from uh, being concerned about the extent to which 
um, critical thinking has gotten within certain areas of the academy, not universally, not, not everybody, not all institutions, but within certain areas has gotten locked into a kind of practice of pointing out um, what's wrong with all of the prior arguments in order to be able to make the argument that um, the, the author or the scholar is choosing to make now. Um, and it, some of that negativity, some of that kind of critique is absolutely required because honestly, there's a whole lot in contemporary culture and in, in the world in general that it would be valid for us to think really super critically about. Um, but there's a way in which that form of negativity, that form of critique has been privileged at the expense of, uh, of a kind of deep engagement with the ideas before leaping to the alternatives, right? That we're not really um, in the same way that, that, you know, we would ideally want to be. Um, fully thinking through what what Peter Elbow uh, once referred to as a believing game, right? Sitting with an idea and thinking about what the significance of it might be if it were true. Um, we instead have a tendency to leap to the doubting game, to to focus on what the significance of this thing would be if it were wrong and how it's wrong and where its wrongness comes from and how we can demonstrate its wrongness in order to put forward the, the new idea that we have. And that negativity, I think, um, gets, gets transmitted to our students. It gets read as, um, as a kind of eternal dissatisfaction. Um, and, you know, again, I, I, I want to reiterate that there is plenty to be dissatisfied with. Um, but I also think that it, we run the risk of losing the pleasure in the work that we do and in in we run the risk of of turning our students in certain ways and turning the public away from from what why we got into this field in the first place what about the material that we work with was compelling enough to us that we wanted to spend our lives working on it and so i think that that part of what i am after in um, thinking about generous thinking, not as an alternative to critical thinking or, or as something that's opposed to critical thinking. It's not a matter of just, you know, sort of accepting everything and being nice and, and, and you know, not rocking the boat, um, but rather as, as a mode of um, first engaging with what's being said in a deep, and thoughtful way before beginning to remake it in the ways that we want. So I think that that Buckminster Fuller um, argument or uh, quotation is exactly to the point, right? That that if we are able to linger in what's being said to us in a deeper way and to really think about, um, to think generously with the people and the texts and the ideas um, that we're we're engaging in our work, that we're likely to be able to bring other readers, whether they're our students or members of the public, into the process of inquiry to see what it is that's so compelling about the work that we do. That that's 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 really compelling. It, it seems as if that's that's such a powerful life skill and thinking skill. If it were if it were practiced <laughs> more <laughs> more broadly, well, I think I mean there, there are a lot of areas of American culture that could use a little more listening and a little less shouting. So you know, <laughs> right. Um, so as I was listening to you, though, in some ways, 
what I was hearing was an invitation, not just to jump to building something new right away, but taking some time to really deeply understand the present reality from different perspectives. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because I, I, I mean, one of the things that, you know, looking around the American economy today has gotten us into a normal, enormous trouble is this notion that disruption um, is inherently a good in American culture, that we need to tear down our old institutions and our old ways of working, and we need to make everything completely new. And unfortunately, what we've discovered over the last you know, decade and a half, two decades, is that the new is not always better. Um, than the old ways of working, right? That that in fact, you know, there are there are cities that had no appreciable um, public transportation or no no reasonable taxi service, where Uber coming in has been a, enormously positive for those communities. But there are also communities that had, in fact, um, taxi service and public transportation that worked extremely well, and Uber coming in has undermined those goods. And so we really need to think, uh, you know, not about disruption for disruption's sake, not about building something new simply because we can, um, or because somehow newness is itself a value, but instead to really linger with what is working and what isn't working in the ways that our culture is organized today. And from that, then think carefully about what the, the steps that we need to take forward are. That certainly aligns with the sort of affordances and limitations perspective. Mm -hmm. um, we are almost at the end of our time. And I used to have another podcast. And uh, so I haven't asked this question of anyone I interviewed for the new one. But my old podcast used to be called uh, The Moonshot EDU Show. And, um, and the last question that I always ask guests was uh, what I called the moonshot question. And I thought maybe I'd pull that one out uh, again because I think it, it would intrigue me to hear your response. And, and I'm using moonshot in a positive way. Some people use that, yeah. that as a, in, in a negative way. But, but the, the whole idea of JFK saying by the end of the 60s, we're going to send a, he said, man, a person to the moon and bring him back safely by the, by the end of the decade and, and set this sort of grand charge out there and, mm -hmm. and people collectively gathered together and it, and it was actually accomplished. So if, if you had that kind of influence and you could hmm. put a moonshot out there for the current higher education ecosystem, what would it be? Oh, my goodness. Um, the, <laughs> I should have prepared you for this one. Sorry. <laughs> you know, no, this is great. Um, I would love to say, I would love to see us by the end of the 20s, um, having remade academic standards of employment and the ways that we understand what it is to work on a university campus and how the different categories of employment relate to one another. And by that, I mean relations among tenured and tenure track faculty, non-tenure track faculty, fixed term faculty, um, staff, and other forms of, of work that are taking place on campus. I would love for us to have remade our standards and our modes of employment in a way that allows us to understand that all of us are one faculty. All of us are one community. And that this institution requires all of us in order to keep running. 
And um, this is, I mean, this is a really dramatic transformation. And um, particularly those of us who are on top of that, that what we all understand to be a hierarchical system of academic employment um, are, are loath to give up the privileges that we have gained by being on top of that pyramid. Um, but I think for an institution that really is supposed to be understood as a collective, that's supposed to have shared governance, that's supposed to have a common goal and a common way of moving forward to really achieve those goals and to embody the values that we hold for it, we really have to understand that we are all working in service to those same goals with the same values and that we are, we are, um, we are one faculty body. It's a tall order, right? And yes, it's a generous require... thinking moonshot. <laughs> exactly. It's going to require a whole lot of, of um, strategic and financial work to make something like this happen. But I would really, really like to see a university in 10 years that understands that everyone on campus is an equal contributor um, to the goals of the campus and that everyone should have a voice in the governance of the campus and that everyone should have the same responsibility um, to supporting the values of the campus. Kathleen, I am so grateful for you uh, to joining me on the show today and for your generous uh, time with me and with the audience and for your work around generous thinking. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of EDU Futures, where we agree with Bucky Fuller when he wrote, you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Check out show notes and other episodes at futurist.fm forward slash edu futures.